how God gets you out and takes you home. Uh, Israel, God's people, they were in bondage, in slavery in Egypt. God, you know, he, God flexed his, his might, got them out of Egypt. They're in the wilderness now, and they're heading home to the promised land. And that's the story of every believer. If you're a believer in Christ, Christ has snatched you up out of bondage to sin and death, and you are looking for glory, right? Like that first song that we sang when we opened. We're, we're bound for glory, bound there, but we're not there yet. Songs like, he will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. Get me there, right? So we are on this wilderness journey, and as we're seeing in the book of Exodus, God doesn't just rescue them, kick them out into the wilderness, and then leave them, but he provides what they need to get them home. Some of the stuff is real practical, right? They're thirsty, they need water. Water comes out of bitter waters, water comes out of the rock. They're hungry. He, dew turns into bread in the morning. They, they, what, about, what about protein? That's good carbs. Where's my protein macros, man, right? And then the quail, they start flying in and landing in their laps, and they're cooking quail at night right over the fire. So some of the needs that God provided for them, they were practical needs. But then there's chapter 18. And chapter 18 is a provision for something that God's people need that would be easy to skip over. It'd be easy to, I even have commentaries that just literally just skip this part. <laughs> and, and you know, quail and manna, and they're talking about the Hebrew, the, what does the word manna mean? And then 18, whatever. And then 19, the mountain of God and His holiness. What happened to 18? So we're going to pause and dwell on 18 today. Because it's not just easy for commentators to skip, skip over, or for preachers to skip over, it's easy for us to skip over. It's a kind of provision that is easy for us to think, we don't really need that. That's not really necessary. It was necessary then, and it's necessary now. So we're going to see that in Exodus chapter 18. If you don't have a Bible, uh, if you would slip your hand up, we'll bring you a Bible. And if you don't own a Bible at all, please uh, take it home. It's yours. The Exodus chapter 19, the second book in the Bible, Genesis and then Exodus. Chapters are in order, so you find yourself in chapter 18. And uh, the author, Moses, is going to orient us again to what's going on here. They just came out of Egypt, and here's their situation, and he's going to give us that through the two names of Moses' two boys. So chapter 18, verse 1. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zippor, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom. Why was he named Gershom? For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eliezer, why did he name him Eliezer? For he said, The God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. But when you, we look at those two names, you're going, Okay, we knew that already. So why are, we, why are we revisiting this thing with the names? And it's not wasted ink. It's not just a delay of time. It's not like chapter 18 is too short. Let's throw some stuff in there and open it up a little bit. It's because those names are meaningful. The name Gershom means I'm a stranger in a strange land. I'm in a place I don't belong. 
And that's the Israelite experience. They, they're out of Egypt, they're out of Egypt, and they're in the wilderness, and they're, they're homeless. They're looking forward to home, but right now they're sojourners. That's what, that's what they are. That's what every Christian today is. And the second name, Eliezer, the God of Father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. So are we just lost in the wilderness? Why are we in the wilderness? We're in the wilderness because God brought us out and he's going to take us home. Those two names serve as a reminder, not just for Moses and his family, but set up chapter 18 and what's going to continue. When they get the law from the mountain, you know, Moses comes down with the tablets, all of that is because God is there providing God and he's giving them what they need to survive the wilderness and make it home. But they don't just need manna and bread and quail and water. They need something else. And so here enters a character. We've seen him before, but now he comes in and he becomes the unlikely source to give Moses the advice he needs to lead these people. Verse 5. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses... I, your father-in-law, Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake. All the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced. For all the good that the Lord had done to Israel, and that he had delivered them out of the hands of the Egyptians. Now here's where most people think Jethro converted. He hears this awesome testimony about what God has done, and Jethro, he was a priest, but he didn't really have, he didn't really know Yahweh. And but now he does through Moses' story. In verse 10 it says, Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord, that word there is Yahweh, specifically of the God of the Scriptures, is greater than all gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God and Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. <coughs> I don't know why it says father-in-law so many times. You're like, I get it, right? But I think what, what's happening here is you're seeing this character enter, and he is in a unique position to tell Moses what to do, to, to tell Moses, to give Moses a little bit more than just a nudge or suggestion, but to say, Moses, you need to be doing this instead of doing that. He's his father-in-law, and he's converted. Can't use the excuse like, well, He's, he's a Midianite. He doesn't really have the whole picture. They're like, you know, a, an illegitimate son of Abraham, and they're not really of the line. He is now, right, by faith. And so he has wisdom. He's the father of his wife, Zipporah, the grandfather of his two sons. And he's going to explain to Moses how to do what they're supposed to do so that the people are prepared in the wilderness to head toward the promised land. Here it is. What's that provision? Verse 13. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. Now, real unfortunately, every time we see the word judge, we think of a negative person that's always saying, that, that's always pointing out your bad stuff. 
and they don't, you know, they don't care about their own bad stuff. They're just judgy. But judge just means literally that. People come to him with an issue. Hey, I, you know, I, we decided that my property ended here and, and, and their, their property ended there. But then the next day, they were mowing their lawn up to this part and that's not their property. Moses, what shall we do? All day long. That was my parking spot. That's where my oxen are supposed to stand. Why is his oxen in my oxen spot? Standing in line for Moses, right? I was, I, had, I was sure I had 12 tent pegs. I came out, there's 11 tent pegs, and then suddenly they're using tent pegs that look just like mine. Standing in line for Moses. So Moses, being the one who accesses God's word and, and understands God's law better than anyone there, his role as prophet was to judge between them. Not to be judgy, to judge the case and say, give him the tent peg back, man. Wasting my time. Get out of here. Next, right? And then, of course, sometimes the situations would obviously be much more serious than that. But what I find interesting is that we're seeing this before they get the full details of the law, right? They're at the mountain, but they haven't gotten the full details of the law yet. And what we're seeing is God has put in place leadership so that God's people know what to do. Right now, that's Moses. Moses is in place to provide leadership so that people know what to do in life situations, regular life. But something he's doing is not right. So verse 14, Jethro becomes a spokesperson. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, remember, the people are standing there from morning till evening. This is exhausting. Moses' father-in-law, verse 14, saw all that he was doing for the people. He said, what is it that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another. And I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. They did have some laws already, and of course this will apply later when they have the rest of the decrees. So Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you are doing is not good. That's not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice, I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God, bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moses is like, right, that's what I'm doing. Okay, but verse 21. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs, of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all of Israel 
and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. Why is chapter 18 here? Chapter 18 is here because God is communicating that his people require leadership before they get the rest of the law, and his people require leadership, human leadership, representing God, to get them home. That was true then. That's true now. Why is it so easy to skip over? Well, there's lots of reasons why that's easy to skip over. And some of those will arise as we look at this passage a little bit more. He says to Moses, this isn't good for you or for the people. You're going to wear yourself out. The people are getting worn out. The reason why this is necessary is not just because it's bad for Moses. Obviously, it's bad for Moses, right? He's standing there, and people are bringing big cases to him. You know, I saw my wife with another man. What are you going to do? And then right behind that person, this guy took my tent peg. Right, then right behind that person, uh, you know, my, my husband was, you know, um, beating my brother, you know, and I don't know, how do we settle this fight? Oh my goodness, what do we do? And then behind that person, the guy with the oxen that's standing in the wrong spot. Big cases, small cases, all coming to Moses. Clearly that's too much. From morning till evening, Moses is case after case after case. Obvious that it's too much for him. But Jethro said, it's not just too much for you, but it's too much for the people. You see that in verse 18. It says, you and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out. And that's repeated in verse 23. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace. So the plurality of leadership, in other words, adding leaders to Moses, wasn't just to relieve Moses, which is true, but it was to get people the help they need. So they wouldn't be exasperated going, what am I supposed to do? God just gives these real generic laws. I don't know what to do in this specific life situation. Is there a Bible verse on that? Well, these leaders would say, okay, here's how the Bible verse applies to that situation. Here's how those Bible verses apply to those situations. Here's how God's laws and decrees apply to these specific difficult situations. And God's people need godly leaders in order to do that. Leaders, plural. One guy shouldn't take it on his own because that's not good for that one guy and that would be less help for the people. Very practical, right? Very practical, but it's also theological because God wants structure and he wants people to be able to access his word and his law and God knows that he doesn't have a situation. There isn't a law that specifies every situation. Now when you read through the rest of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and you're trying to get through it in your devotional time, it feels like there's a lot for every situation. There's a lot, but not every situation. And so there's leaders that are necessary for God's people to bring cases to and say, look, I'm, I'm not sure if it's this way or that way. What does God's word have to say about that? Now, it's important to point out Moses' role. Moses' role was not, he wasn't the go-to leader because he was so smart, right? He's so intelligent, he can figure everything else, everything out on the spot. 
let me just think a second and just figure it out. That wasn't his role. What was his role? To investigate the laws and decrees of God and bring those things to bear on actual life. Moses' role was not to say, thus says Moses, this is what you should do with the stupid tent peg. Right? His thing was to go, what is God's law about living together? What, is, what are the principles underlying God's decrees about how we should live with our neighbors? And then how does that apply to tent pegs, oxen, marriages, fist fights? And so it wasn't about Moses being Moses. It was about Moses being an interpreter of God's word. That's what he was there for. So then Jethro comes along and says, you need other interpreters, man. You can't do it by yourself. You're not able to get to everybody. So have the small cases go to the, some leaders, and then some leaders get medium cases, and then other leaders get medium hard. And just the most difficult ones where everyone's scratching their head, they're not sure, they'll bring it to you. And if you don't know off the top, you can go in the tent, man, and get a word from God, right? But you being the foremost expert, You'll bring to bear on the hardest cases and the cases that doesn't need an expert like Moses to do it, other leaders can do it. Real practical, real easy, but the point is that it's necessary to get them through the wilderness. This is before the Ten Commandments. This is before how he explains what to do with the tabernacle and the measurements. This is before he unpacks the laws about Sabbath, before he, un- he talks about obeying parents and honoring them, is before he talks about thou shalt not kill. Before all that, we need structure in place. And the structure is leadership that helps you understand how to take God's word and apply it to life. It's necessary for God's people then, and it's necessary for God's people today. How many times we run into people, they say, I, I hate organized religion. What do you like, disorganized religion? Just say you don't like religion then. But when it's disorganized, there's, who, who's, who's saying what? What that person is saying is, I want to run rogue. I want to do what I want to do, how I want to do it, and I want to pay attention to the parts of the Bible that I want to pay attention to. And every time the Bible talks about structure or church or elders or leaders or do things in a certain way, nah, that's what, uh, that's what is meant by I don't like organized religion. Or oftentimes, that person saying that is reflecting back on a bad church experience where there was the abuse of authority. And that's certainly true. And that's a shame. But the abuse of something doesn't negate the legitimateness of it. Right? The fact that something is abused doesn't make it wrong. It makes the abuse of it wrong. So have people used Christianity to wage wars? Yup. Was the war wrong? Yup. Is Christianity wrong? No, it was abused in order to wage the war. So, same thing with authority, structure, organization, and a way for people to access God's word from godly leaders who can help them understand how it applies to life. Those leaders abuse their authority when they take the word of God out of it and just say, by virtue of my office, I'm telling you to do this. But if the godly leader is godly, he's going to say, well, let's look at God's word and here's what it says. And here's how it applies to your life. That's what a godly leader does. And the godly part 
is important. Notice that he doesn't say grab a bunch of smart people. Grab a bunch of people that are, that are just experts. These guys are just sharp. You know, they're just, they're witty, they're, they're funny, they, they speak to situations clearly, they're good writers, they all have real successful blogs, you know, nothing like that. What does he say? Well, he says there to be a certain kind of people. He says in verse 20, you shall warn them about the statutes, you're going to take that. Verse 21, but you need other guys. Look for able men from all the people. And then what is their character like? Sure, they're able to understand the law and apply it, but what are they like? They're men who fear God. They're men that you can trust. And they're men that are not corruptible. They don't take a bribe. Hey, man, if I slip you this hundred, can you have him give him all, my, all his tent pegs? Tell him God said, here's this hundred. They can't be like that. This has to come first. You need a guy where this comes first, and it doesn't matter if money is involved. It doesn't matter what fallout there's going to be by following this. We follow this, and then we let God take care of the fallout. We don't follow this when it's convenient. We don't follow this when we think we're going to get something out of it, because then you're corruptible. Then you're going to do things in a way where you're going to go, you know what? Let's not do it that way, even though Scripture says it. Let's do it another way so that we can get something else. And that'll kill God's people. That would have hurt them. It would kill a church today. It does kill churches today. So don't just look for random dudes, people that are popular or people that have a bunch of money. Look for able men. They have to have skill. But look for men who fear God, who people can trust and that even if a bribe is put before them, they will not give in to it because why? <laughs> they fear God more than they fear man. They know God is watching. And so the report they give in each individual case, they know God is watching going, you're representing me. Say what I would say. And so they're careful. They're careful to say only what Scripture says and try not to go beyond it. And if Scripture doesn't press application on a particular situation, well, then maybe there's freedom there. Paul talks about that in Romans, right? Some of y'all are eating meat that was sacrificed to idols. Some of you guys are not eating meat that was sacrificed to idols. God doesn't say you can or you shouldn't or you should. So this is a matter of difference of opinion. Let the meat eater eat meat in peace, and let the ones who don't want to eat meat not judge the ones that eat meat, but the ones that eat meat don't just rub it in their face and like, mm, this is so good, Right? Because then you're being a stumbling block to the other person. So the wisdom there is, Bible doesn't say eat or don't eat, but it does say love each other. You see, that's what Paul is doing in Romans 14. So he wants Moses to gather to himself godly, trustworthy, God-fearing, incorruptible men to help lead the people of Israel in following God's word. It was true then, and it's true today. God's people need to be led by His Word, and to be led by His Word, they need godly leaders. They need godly leaders. If you look at verse 21, and you see these uh, qualifications, right, that we just looked at, 
these qualifications for what a godly leader is going to look like, it looks really close to things that we see in the New Testament. Now granted, there are differences. I don't go into a tent and come out with my face glowing and a couple of tablets with a finger of God written on there, like start out a members meeting. This is what he just gave me, guys. We're not voting. It's what it says on the tablet, you know. I don't don't do that, right? I can't do that. We're not, uh, our government is separate. The way our lives are governed by the state is separate from, from church. And for the Israelites, they're one and the same. They're together. That's not true for us. But if we let the differences between our situation and our situation erase the relevance of this passage to our lives, that would be foolish. That would be foolish. That'd be wrong. The universal truth here is that God's people need leadership, godly leadership, to make it home. You look at these qualifications, and it reminds us of the qualifications for elders in the New Testament. There's a few verses to go to. We'll put one up on the screen. That's in Titus 1. Titus 1, 5 through 9. This is why I left you in Crete, Paul writing to Titus, so that you might put what remained into order. There's the order and the organization. And appoint elders, plural, in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, here are the qualifications. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, that's an elder, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. Right? The role is the same. The role of the elder, the role of the overseer, is not to have an office, have a name tag that says elder or pastor. Last week somebody called me reverend. I'm like, whoa, whoa. (laughs) There's only one person do reverence, you know. So it's not about titles. It's not about office. It's about knowing scripture to apply it to people's lives for their help so that they can make it through the wilderness we're not going to make it through the wilderness just on you know yeah we're spirit filled and he's going to give us what we need and i love the lord and i put in my worship tape on the way to work and that's church for me no when none of us rise above our need for leadership and accountability and other people in our lives saying, you know, this is what Scripture says and here's how it brings, comes to bear on our life situations. So the call for Moses to round, surround himself with godly leaders so that people have godly leaders to go to, that's a universal truth because that's how people are. That, that's how we are. We need godly, trustworthy, spiritual leaders. That means we need church. Church is necessary to get through the wilderness. I want to. I, I was looking at this passage and I realized, you know, 
some of this was so judicial. It, it wasn't just about, you know, hey Moses, um, I'm not sure where to go to college. Can you tell me God's will for my life? It, it, they, were, they were cases, like legal cases. And then, I, then I'm reminded of how Paul writes to the Corinthians, how the Corinthians are taking cases to each other. One of them bumps the other one in the parking lot. Well, they didn't have cars back then, but you understand what I'm doing, right? They're in the parking lot, that one of them bumps into the other person's car, and what's the first phone call they make? The police, switch insurance, my lawyer. Why are you guys doing that? You're brothers in Christ. Why can't one of you just go, my bad, let me give you the money for that? Why can't one of you just say, you know what, don't worry about it, I'll rub it out at home in the garage, I got a little, it's not a, it's not a big deal. Why don't we split it 50-50? I know you're having a hard time right now, and it's not that big. I, should, I shouldn't have been in the way. Why can't you guys just figure it out like that? Why does it have to go directly to law? Check out this verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, <laughs> Paul says, When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough? There's no one among your congregation wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. So Paul is spanking the Corinthians verbally, right? For going to court all the time instead of solving it in-house. Now, what's in-house? How do you solve it in-house? Who do you need to come alongside to solve a dispute between two people? What do you say? Don't you have anyone wise enough? Well, who should be the wisest in the bunch? Who should be the godliest, most trustworthy, most incorruptible people that are going to give a fair, a fair word and not be bribed by familiarity or partiality or racism or prejudice? Who are the ones in the church that should most represent the ability to cast wise judgment from God's word and not from any other source? The leaders of the church. Now that doesn't mean you can't talk to a brother or another sister who's not an elder and that you can only talk to elders. Hey, we need help, right? And I already know I'm not Moses. But the structure is there for your good. The structure is there for you. Now, when I see families struggling, sometimes that struggle makes its way finally to my desk, so to speak, and I want to prayerfully step in and help, and I want to look at God's Word and see how does this apply to life. But sometimes I see so many hoops that were jumped through before it finally gets to the church. It went to the high school guidance counselor first. It went to the neighbors first. It went to their cousins first. People that aren't even Christian, they're just, well, what do you think? Because they're cousins, right? Now, I'm not saying none of those opinions matter. I'm saying the structure that God has put in the church is for your help. We should avail ourselves of that help. 
I'm preaching more work for myself. I wish I could just study for a sermon all week long, and then that's it. Nobody bother me with anything. I'm just studying a sermon. But even the sermon itself, right? If the sermons were just, here's what God's Word says, here's a couple cool Hebrew words maybe you didn't know, here's the syntax, the grammar, you know, here's how it flows, and that's basically what the content is. That's the content, guys. Let's pray. Let's close in worship. That wouldn't be a sermon. What makes a sermon a sermon and not a lecture? The ability to take what it says and apply it to life and say, guys, here's how we're living and here's how it's telling us to live. Here's how we're supposed to live in actual life outside of these doors. Now, this book is not to have something to say for 30 minutes on a Sunday. This book is for your life. This book is for depression. That 13 Reasons video that just came out, you want to talk to your friends about that? Don't study the video. Study this. I don't need to know what the video says or the director or the people. I need to know this. This is life. Somebody comes and talks to you about their crumbling marriage. What's the first thing that comes to your head? Five tips on how to make things happier? Or something from here? So as a people, we need sometimes to rewire and recognize God's word is not some stuffy thing for theologians in a closet, kind of boring and irrelevant. It's relevant, highly relevant. As we saw Paul and the Corinthians, even down to lawsuits, you guys can figure this out together, and you don't need to take each other to court. Use the elders in the church to come alongside. I think one of the, one of the hesitations that we have in church is if I tell my cousin who's not a believer that I'm struggling with something, he's not going to judge me. He's already struggling with a bunch of junk. He's probably relieved that I have a struggle, that I'm not Mr. Perfect. So it's easy to go to that person. But if I go to the church, if I go to an elder, and i got to put my junk before that elder and admit that the whole thing started because I said something wrong, or the whole thing is a mess now because here's my involvement in it, then I'm going to feel belittled. I'm going to feel like they look down on me. Maybe they remove me from membership. And brothers and sisters, that would only be the case if I thought that I was perfect. I wouldn't be qualified as an elder if that were true. None of the elders in this church would be qualified as elders if that were true, if they thought they were elders because they're better than you. Because I've got nothing wrong in my life. Everything I say to my kids is perfect. Perfect intonation every time. My kids feel uplifted every time I ask them to do their chores. They're just like, man, dad is just, other other parents yell at their kids. And my dad is just, he just speaks it so softly and his face is glowing as he hands me the tablet with my chores on it. Right? Life is messy, life is complicated, life is difficult, and sure, my life needs to be above reproach, but above reproach can't mean perfect, because if it meant perfect, none of us would be elders. So we have to be a church that lives by grace alone, meaning the only reason why I'm saved, and even in this wilderness, and not still stuck in bondage, is because God has put grace in my life. He's forgiven me. And when people come to the elders with stuff, confusions, matters of dispute, things that are struggles, difficulties. We're grace alone, man. And what you need in that situation is grace, help from Scripture. 
and not a verbal lashing. It might be a rebuke. It, it might need a correction because I need that in my life sometimes too. So I'm, I'm remembering, <laughs> and I'll, I'll close with this, you know, from my own personal life, I'm, because I'm not Moses, I'm definitely not Jesus, I, I need that accountability in my life too. So I have a couple sources of that. You remember when we, back when we joined Five Stone Churches, my number one thing, me pastorally, I, I, I don't want to be at the top of this pyramid, man. I don't want to be at the top. It's Lucas at the top. And, and if I start going, stuff I shouldn't say, there's no one to check me. There's no one to come alongside. So, no, we have a plurality of elders here where someone can come alongside me and say, hey, man, that was a good sermon. If we were Muslims, you totally got that theology wrong, man. You need to stick, right? Go after me. But the church can also reach out to Gordon, other pastors in the Five Stone Church Network, to say, hey, we're not exactly sure. It felt weird what he was saying, but you guys know a little more. Can you, can you talk to Lucas about this weird stuff he's teaching? I meet with local pastors every first Tuesday of the month. And we go around in a circle. Just last uh, two uh, months ago, one brother brought up a situation. I wanna, I'm going to go like this, and the congregation's resisting it. I'm going to go after it, and I want to do it. I, I, I think it's something that we need to do. And there's some people in the congregation that don't like it. But I think, you know, they're just going to have to eat it. I think this is something we have to do. And we went around, like 15 of us. Well, what do you think? What do you think? What do you think? And the council around the entire table was, don't die on that hill, man. Just put it on the shelf. Love on those people that don't want to do that and just move the church, continue moving the church in the direction it's supposed to go and don't worry about that other thing, man. Just, just let it ride and honor those people. They're good people. They just disagree with you on this. Take the hit. Everyone, the full consensus. I'm assuming he left and did what we said. 15, 15 pastors telling him all the same thing. I'm assuming he got, but I think that's what he needed in that moment, Right? So pastors should not be lone rangers because I don't have a, a, a tent with a big cloud over it that I come out of. I, I don't have that. So we need each other. I'm not the only interpreter of Scripture. And I might tell you something that's wrong one time. Are you going to show me in Scripture? Well, I'm not sure about this. And we can go back and forth because it's the priesthood of all believers, right? I'm not a priest and then you're a bunch of my underlings. We're all priests in the sense that we have access to God's word to understand what he's saying. What I'm commending to you, church, is to embrace how Christ has organized his church for the help of his people. He doesn't want you starving spiritually. We don't live by bread alone. We live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. What are those words? And how do those words apply to specific things in my life? If we think, nah, the elders of my church, they don't know anything about this. All they know is how to spout scripture then either we misunderstand our elders or we've got bad elders. One of the two. But Scripture applies to life. And as a church, we come alongside one another to apply Scripture to life as a first resort and not as a last resort. Because those last resorts are less helpful and will die out there in the wilderness if we're not accessing how God's Word speaks specifically to life situations.